0: University of California Television presents this podcast of Gen Xers and how they are changing American religion, featuring Wade Clark Roof, director of the Walter H. Capps Center for the Study of Ethics, Religion, and Public Life at UC Santa Barbara, recorded in January 2006. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. Hello. It is my great privilege to introduce Clark Wade Roof, who teaches in the Religious Studies Department at the University of California at Santa Barbara. He has a lot of academic um, degrees and things like that, but what I would like to talk about with respect to Clark is he, to me, is the epitome of what a university should be doing, and that is going out into the public, not just waiting for people and students to come to where he is, rather for him to engage people out where everybody else lives. I think that in order for a university to be relevant, uh, to also be somewhat irrelevant, uh, you need to have the balance of being both there but also out here. And I think Clark really epitomizes that both with respect to his own field and his own studies but also in his role as director of the CAPS Institute. This is something he took on early on after Walter died, and we're beginning to see more and more fruits of his labor. So rather than take up any more of his time, it is with a great deal of pleasure and my privilege to introduce to you Dr. Wade Clark Rook.
1: Thank you very much, Chuck. I like that part about both relevance and irrelevance. I'll, tr- I'll work on the relevant side to not today and hope it's not too irrelevant what I have to say. But yes, that's true. Cap Center for the Study of uh, Ethics, Religion, Public Life uh, does indeed try to reach people beyond the university. And I think that's the model of education for the 21st century. You know, we're long past that time when we thought of education as four years out of your life, college education is four years, and you go to school and you get it all and you know what you're doing and you leave and it's all over. No, it's not that way. I guess it was never quite that way, but it certainly is not that way today. Well, I'm here to, to talk with you about uh, Gen X. Is that right? We got the right topic and the right audience? Sometimes I ask my students that because I I've, I've occasionally find someone who's a little bit Off base and doesn't know which class he or she is in. And I once had a student who thought he was in chemistry class, and that was far fetched for me to do anything with. Anyway, Gen X and religion—that's the general thing we're working with here today. So it's my pleasure to be with you. I want to begin with uh, reading to you uh, a passage. It's uh, stick with me. It's it's uh, a long paragraph. It's written by Arthur Green, who's. a scholar at Brandeis University. And he was looking at uh, New York's Jewish Week magazine one day. And I guess he was looking at the personals, you know, those those descriptions of people. And uh, he ran across this one, and it sort of jumped out at him, and then he wrote about it. So I want to read this to you. He says, I was looking through New York's Jewish Week magazine, and I saw the following personal column. It was from a woman who described herself as DJF, 26, spiritual, not religious, seeking like-minded JM, etc. Divorced Jewish female, 40, uh, uh, 26, spiritual, not religious, seeking like-minded Jewish male, etc. Arthur Green writes, this young woman should indeed be of interest to us. Allow me to treat her, if you will, as an icon of our age. I think she has a pretty clear idea of what she means by spiritual, not religious. You could meet her along with a great many other Jews at a yoga ashram retreat where she goes for a weekend of yoga Massage, a lecture on spiritual teachings, healthy vegetarian food, and conversations with like-minded people. You will not meet her at your synagogue, from which she continues to feel alienated. But she fasts and meditates on Yom Kippur, a day that has some special meaning for her. She reads both Sufi and Hasidic stories. Passover with her family is still an obnoxious and boisterous totally unspiritual affair, she says. But one year, her folks were away away on a cruise, and she got to to go to a woman's Seder. It was a little too verbal and too strident for her taste, but she'd like to try more of that sort of thing, if it weren't conveniently available. She read parts of I and Thou years ago, the book I and Thou, and liked it, but most of her Inspiring reading of late has been by Eastern authors or by Americans who have chosen an Eastern path. The fact is, she doesn't read very much. Being of the video generation, she'd much rather watch tapes of lectures by the Dalai Lama, which she owns, than read his book. By spiritual, not religious, she doesn't only mean East versus West. She thinks of herself as a seeker more than a joiner. She has no interest in cults, and thinks that her cousin, Shimon, formerly Scott, may now be in a cult. (laughs) She picks things up here and there, believes that all religions are one, and is happy to live with bits of turned-on teachings from Jewish, Sufi, Hindu, and Buddhist sources, all joined without any need for theological consistency. She is willing to accept spiritual disciplines when meaningful. She's been a vegetarian for years, after all and she once went on a 30-day silent vir- uh, vigil at a Buddhist retreat center. She cheated a couple times and was, not, and was interested to note that other people having trouble maintaining 30 days of silence were also Jewish, one of them even a rabbi. <laughs> but she also uses the phrase spiritual, not relig- religious, as a way of saying that she's really not interested in an orthodox guy or the traditional Jewish lifestyle that a relationship with him would demand. Okay, enough for Arthur Green's commentary on spiritual but not religious. Well, that's a phrase we hear a fair amount today. And I want to try to get us into that topic by noting that the religious landscape of this country today is deeply divided, pulled in opposite directions toward a resurgence of dogmatic fundamentalist truth claims on the one hand, and toward a free-floating, self-focused spirituality, on the other hand. The dogmatic fundamentalist reaction is fueled by rapid social and cultural change, not just in the United States, but globally. The movement arises out of worries about moral and religious relativism, and thus assumes a rather defensive posture. It seeks a return to absolutes. It argues that there's only one way to salvation, it attempts to restore traditional authority. It caters to people's insecurities by offering a sense of certainty in a world where certainty is hard to come by. It abhors pluralism in matters of truth and lifestyles. Of course, there are many different types of fundamentalism, but essentially they are all a backlash to what we call modernity. The opposite trend cast in the extreme is the free-floating, self-focused spirituality as described by the young Jewish girl we just mentioned. Here's a radical turning inward to a search for truth in personal experience, a quest for authenticity. The search looks far and wide to many religions, to many spiritual teachings. The search presumes that no one religion necessarily has all the answers. For the person who says, I am spiritual but not religious, the link between the inner world of the self and the outer institutional expression has been severed, or at least greatly eroded. It's just you and God, or the sacred. Both trends, fundamentalism and a self-preoccupied spirituality, might be thought of as aberrations of a sort. If the first one points to a reified, dogmatic, literalistic type of religion, that is frozen in forms inherited from the past, the second points to a metaphysical homelessness in a world without foundations. The first is answer-oriented religion, answers even when there aren't questions, and the second is a question-oriented religion that asks deep, very serious questions about life itself. It is this latter quest that I focus on this afternoon, a quest that applies to many young Americans, especially the younger baby boomers, and especially the Gen Xers. Who are these folks? To talk about Gen Xers is not easy. As their title suggests, they don't have a label that defines an identity. They're just Xers. Specifically as to age, Gen Xers were born roughly between the years 1964 to 1984. They are now roughly between the ages of 22, 24, to about 42, 43. They're also called the buster generation. They got that title because they followed the boom generation. There's a boom, then there was a bust. There were so many boomers, much fewer busters. And, of course, following the uh, buster generation or the Gen Xers now is another generation that's been given a name. They are the millennials coming into adulthood in this first decade of this new millennium. We know even less about the millennial generation and not a heck of a lot about the Gen Xers as compared with the Boomers. How would we profile the Xers? What do we really know? We might begin by noting that they've grown up in a world inherited from the Boomers, and they feel a little resentful about that. There's been so much talk about the Boomers. After all, there were so many of them, and they affected this country in so many ways as they have gone through the life cycle. Now you, you hear about Boomers and retirement plans, you know. Xers say we've heard enough about those folks. What about us? X generation has been greatly influenced, as all of us have, but they in particular by trends toward greater consumption, environmental consciousness, and gender role changes. All those things are taken for granted by Xers. Most of them cannot imagine a world not shaped by those influences. They share much with the boomers before them, yet they feel as if they've grown up in the shadow of that large generation, as I mentioned. Gen Xers often feel unimportant, of little influence. Most are sick and tired of hearing about their predecessors. They've also inherited a high level of distrust in public institutions of all kinds, including religious institutions. This latter is not hard to understand. Gen Xers have witnessed the scandals of the televangelist and the abuse of children by priests. Gen Xers have also known a lot of family disruption. Their parents had high levels of divorce. As children, they were often known as latchkey kids. They had to adjust to working moms on a scale perhaps more so than any generation ever. They also were introduced to many different forms of family, single moms, blended families, and, of course, shared custodies. It is said that they are a lonely generation, lonely because of a lack of close family relations. Themes of loneliness and a wish for a warmer family relationship, all that's detected in much of Gen X music. They've They've watched a lot of television, which has led, perhaps, to their being, as one commentator says, entertainment conscious. To catch their attention, even on serious subjects, the topic needs to be cast in an entertainment format. They are quick to flip channels. Technology generally looms large in their experience. They grew up with computers and are more online and cyberspace savvy than intergeneration yet the connection with technology is terribly important as I'll have a bit more to say about that later. Religiously and spiritually, what might we say in describing the Gen Xers? Well, it should be noted at the outset that Xers overall are somewhat more conservative religiously today than were boomers when they were at a comparable age. In great part, this is because of the success of the Evangelical Christian movement in reaching them. Some we would describe within the fundamentalist camp, but most are not. Many fit into the Evangelical sector or define themselves simply as spiritual, and others, for lack of a better word, are simply religiously indifferent. I want to focus my comments on this generation around five major points. The approach will be to try to get into the life world of the Gen Xers and connect their experiences with religious and spiritual trends. That's right, five points. More than the usual Trinitarian emphasis at the Episcopal Church. But hang in there with me. I'll try to keep you interested. But if you should finish before I do, (laughs) just sit there and I'll try to catch up with you. Number one, religious pluralism. The world Gen Xers know is one of increased religious pluralism. We all know about that, but they know about it even more so. No generation has been more exposed to religious diversity than these young Americans, and especially in a place like California. Pluralism not only expands the religious options available, it shifts the religious psychology. Religion comes to be defined as a choice. Not an obligation, not an inheritance. Expectations that one would be religiously affiliated were greater in the past. So were expectations that people would remain in the faith tradition in which they were born. What does it mean to say that religion becomes more and more a choice? For one thing, it means that people choose that which they decide for whatever reason that seems appropriate to them. We begin to speak of religion as a preference. That is much the same way as we might speak about wine. But I'm not gonna say anything about wine any further than that, not in this audience. But you get my point. You have preferences about commodities, wine and toothpaste and whatnot. Religion is now treated like a commodity, a preference, something you can consume. Gen Xers not only choose among religions, they pick and choose among beliefs and practices within a religion. But so do virtually all Americans, for that matter. It's simply that Xers are more open about it. One quarter of Americans today say they believe in reincarnation. That's right, 25%. Which means that Eastern beliefs have fused into Jewish and Christian communities. Actors place a lot of emphasis on authenticity. That is, religion must be meaningful to them in a deeply personal way. And not simply because it was handed down by their parents or, 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 or from their friends. Not surprisingly, many of them, like the young Jewish woman we described at the beginning, choose to be spiritual but not religious because they don't feel connected to establish religious practices. In an earlier age of less religious pluralism, there was more of a taken-for-granted certainty religiously. Now people, and Gen Xers in particular, are more aware that no faith tradition has a monopoly on truth. Two-thirds of Gen Xers in the United States five years ago in a survey agreed with the statement that, quote, religions are equally good and true. All religions are equally good and true. The sociologist Peter Berger observes that the coexistence and interaction with people with very different beliefs, values, and lifestyles influences not so much what people believe as how they believe. That is to say, pluralism is likely to lead to subtle changes in how we think about and practice faith. We tend to become more open to others who believe differently and less eager to proselytize. We become... We can be committed, but at the same time recognize that individuals have freedom to what they believe about God and how to interpret the meaning of such belief. The consequence is, as commentator Winifred Gallagher points out, many Americans, and especially young Americans today, are working on God. They're thinking a lot about it, not sure if they believe in it, but it's an interesting thing to explore. But it's also true, as the case with more literalistic, fundamentalist believers, there may become more defensive in pluralism. After all, the other religions around you might decide you've got the one right religion and you ought to close the doors to all others. To the closed-minded religious believer, religious is a, re, pluralism is a serious threat. Hence, the revival of fundamentalist, literalistic faith and the search for religious certainty and moral absolutes on the part of many young people as well. And yet, despite all the fundamentalist noise, the optimist within me says that the stance toward pluralism, that the the defensive stance toward pluralism, will not prevail in the long run. Our history of separation of church and state, our expanding religious diversity, and the value that Americans place upon choice generally, all suggest that a more positive style of pluralism is likely here to stay. Gen Xers will be the carriers of that new tolerance toward religious uh, religions of all kinds. Point number two, for those of you who need to know exactly where we are and how long this might last. Neo-agnostics. Gen Xers are not particularly atheistic. In fact, Americans generally are not particularly atheistic. We have a lot more agnostics than atheists. Gen Xers have been described as neo-agnostic. Now, how is a neo-agnostic different from a traditional agnostic? Typically in the past, agnostics have been thought of as people who doubt, and from the standpoint of faith communities, that wasn't necessarily a good thing. You shouldn't doubt. But neo-agnostics live today in a culture where doubting has been defined as a good thing to do. Doubt has come to be defined as a way of engaging religion, of asking hard questions, of accepting no easy answers. Again, to quote Winifred Gallagher, the commentator, she describes neo-agnostics as follows. Religion at the year 2000 concerns questions about how to live in a time of unparalleled change and expressed dissatisfaction with conventional secular solutions, and often those of old-style institutional religion. The approach of neo-agnostics, she writes, regards questions themselves as religious expressions. End of quote. She goes on to say, religion starts with a question about meaning. What's true? What matters? Why is there something instead of nothing? Is this all there is? Who am I? What should I do? Sometimes the question presents itself as a rainy Sunday afternoon existential blues, a fear of death, a shadow or hole in a fortunate life, Unlike believers, neo-agnostics don't have a ready answer to the questions, but unlike atheists, they can't help hearing in it the possibility of something else. Sociologist Berger, again, echoes something of this same point when he notes that many people today acknowledge the possibility of belief but do not necessarily affirm belief. Now, that's the space that many neo agnostic Gen Xers live in. I also want to suggest it's a very creative space. It's a space of questioning, of engaging, of wrestling a bit like Job with the big questions of life. A creative space, yes, but perhaps not always an easy space in which to live. Number three. That was a short number two. Loose connections. Gen Xers have loose connections to institutions. As already noted, they've witnessed a great deal of family disruption. Hence, they're a bit cautious, even in personal commitments. Aside from caution, there is also the fact that Gen Xers marry later, and a significant number appear not to be interested in marriage at all. The marriage rate, or I should say the 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 lack of marriage rate has been on the increase, up around 9% now among Gen Xers. With regard to institutions, ways of connecting are definitely changing. Much has been made in the past decade about Robert Putnam's thesis about bowling alone. That is, we engage in groups less and participate more in individualistic activities. Robert Putnam was this professor at Harvard University who did this study of bowling, and he found out there's about the same amount of bowling going on today as always in the past, but rather than groups bowling, it was largely individuals bowling alone. Hence, the title of his book, Bowling Alone. Now, he inferred from that, and one can understand why he would, that bowling alone uh, suggests a more fragmented society. There's less civic conversation we're doing fewer things in groups, and, and, and that led him to worry a lot about the nature of the social fabric in which we live today when we live so, such individualistic lives. Now, in that book, he also notes that Gen Xers, you know, they are very, very individualistic. They, they, uh, they, they're voting less than, than previous generations, and voting patterns have been going down. They join fraternal and civic organizations less often, far less often than even the boomers, and they didn't set any good examples for that. Uh, uh, Gen Xers seldom work together across the age span on community projects. Even our willingness to trust others appears to have diminished considerably, according to the polls, and particularly at the level of young adults of very low level of trust and confidence in American institutions. However, other commentators have responded, saying that a more balanced view suggests that social activities may not have declined so much as taken on new forms. The life worlds that young people inhabit today are certainly more porous in the sense that you can move in and out of groups more frequently than perhaps people did a generation or two ago. And it's also the case that this generation has found new ways to connect, particularly through the internet. A lot of anonymous connecting, connecting around causes, connecting with people on a global uh, basis, people you don't know necessarily, but nonetheless connecting. So, the internet has opened up a whole new realm of of how social bonds are created and sustained now there's some people worry a lot about that as in, with its implications for democracy i mean we, we need groups to come together this was putnam's thesis we need groups to come together face to face to work on the problems of a community of, of a nation uh, our, our political issues etc cetera, etc cetera. so are there dark consequences with the role of the internet as it relates to social bonding for the future—that's a wide-open issue, around which there's certainly no no answers. But Gen Xers are often uh, painted in rather dismal uh, ways for being uh, less connected on the ground, so to speak. It's also pointed out as part of this debate that the Gen X generation, as I said before, is closely connected to technology, and the. One of the consequences of that is that Gen Xers find it often not very useful to make close bonds with people because their lives are changing so much. Why make a lot of social relationships if, in fact, uh, your life is up for grabs? For example, job changes occur very, very frequently for Xers. Partly because the jobs are linked to technology, and they've seen how lots of people have been let go as technology changes and types of work is changing. So many Xers, if you ask them at at UCSB or some other university today, and I might say that uh, the the students I have today no longer call themselves Xers. They're something else, they say. Xers are a little older than they are, and that's true based on what we just said. But if you ask them today about the future, they don't talk about having a single career for the future. Or few do. They talk well. I hope you know I'm going to prepare for this, but I know down the road I may have to switch and do something else. Possibly go back to school. So, the whole nature of how one sees life seems to be changing, and that may feed into the fact that many exers they have have such loose connections to institutions. Why get too involved if you're going to only be around for a short time before you move on? So, there's this psychology of mobility. Yet at the same time, as I was noting, just as they can connect with anonymous people on the Internet around fundamental issues, they do keep in touch with friends who live outside immediate communities if they choose to do so. And they're pretty good at networking, and they've used the Internet to as, a, as an effective means of being connected when they want to be connected. And it is also the case that they will indeed sign up for short-term institutional commitments. It's that long-term vow that really scares them. Short-term, yes. They may not be lifelong members of the Kiwanis Club, but they'll volunteer for Habitat for Humanity for a week. Seven days. No more. Just seven days. So they move in and out of short-term obligations with considerable ease. Now, the important point about social relationships among young adults is that relations themselves are changing. Young adults today are no less social creatures than young adults in the past, but they are more likely to go out to lunch with friends than to join the PTA. More women are in the labor force, as we know, so they may have less time to host dinner parties, yet they find time to go jogging regularly with a friend Informal social activities take precedence over formal activities. So, again, some kind of shift is going on here with the nature of of social bonding. Now, the implications for religion are rather profound. Many of the long-established social activities within churches and synagogues have lost attraction to Gen Xers. Other types of community are important for them, especially those types of community where they feel warmth and emotional involvement. They are attracted to communities where there is some genuine caring, where people meet one another in some depth, and therein lies a huge challenge for religious institutions. Can religious institutions offer a quality of community that transcends what Gen Xers can find elsewhere? Xers are looking for wholeness in some deep spiritual sense. And the challenge to churches, synagogues, and temples is to find a way to try to provide that. End of point number three. Now point number four, information explosion. Information has been expanding for human beings as long as there's been human beings, of course. But in recent decades, there's been this enormous explosion of information. And this is an important point because information is now more readily accessible to the average person through the mass media than such information has ever been available in the history of humanity. In addition, information now comes in a great variety of venues, as we all know. Radio, network television, cable television, and the internet one communication technology following another in a relative brief span of, of human time, all of which gives us greater choice in how we access information. Gen Xers relate to this digital revolution in, in information very, very well. If there is a culture gap between the generations, it is, dearly, it is clearly with respect to computer literacy. They know how to access information on almost any topic, including religion, and they access a lot of information on religion and spirituality. The Internet has many consequences for religion, and certainly one of them is the democratizing of truth claims. Thousands and thousands of faith communities, the traditional ones, but also many that stretch the notion of religion, like the Church of Elvis Presley, have their websites For the person who knows little about religious history, one option seems about as good as another. Keep in mind, there's an enormous amount of religious illiteracy in the American public today, and especially among young people. Most of the young people I deal with at UCSB wouldn't know the difference between a Mormon and a Methodist. Hence, many rely on website information for such understanding. In addition, The Internet hosts thousands of websites for special-purpose groups, many of which are religious or spiritual in character. Special-purpose groups are organized to advance a particular cause, and they often make use of religious symbols and teachings to bolster their arguments. As we all know, abortion, gay rights, environmentalism, saving whales, stem cell research, euthanasia, and scores of other issues all have their advocates and their detractors. That is to say, you can find a special purpose group or groups on either and both sides of any particular issue. Both are there to try to promote a particular perspective, set of values, ideology, and if you read closely, you will note that they can all make use of religious symbols and teachings from the same tradition, as Martin Luther once said, even the devil can quote scripture. So, everybody today, it seems, is quoting their favorite verse of scripture from the Bible or from now the Quran or wherever for an argument in favor of or against, and as I say, using certain selected passages on both sides. So, we're now living in a situation for a generation that is so internet conscious that. For, for many Xers, that's where the action in religion is happening. It's in the discussions and debates going on that the special purpose groups that are these you know, cyberspace communities, uh, it's the action that's going on among them. So the impact on Gen Xers, and not just on Gen Xers, is at least twofold. One is, can you use religion to defend just about anything, any cause, And if that is true, then of what real value is it? Secondly, why do you need a church? Just find a cause that you like that makes use of religious values, beliefs, and symbols, and claim it as your religion. So the Internet has has opened up a whole new arena of how religion operates, and that takes us into a situation that makes it very competitive for religious institutions congregations. Not unrelated to what I'm talking about is niche marketing of religion, and that's big today. Religious niche marketing takes the form of organizing faith communities around particular lifestyles, occupations, life situations, ideologies, and the like. Evangelical Christianity in particular has been very effective in such organizing. Hence, you have Motorcyclists for Jesus, Christian Deep Sea Diving Association. The Cowboy Church. The Singles Again Association. Note they don't say the Divorcees Association. That word is gone. It's single again. The Singles Again Association. Or Be Thin for Him. That's the Dieting Association. And the like. Now the point here is, the point is there there are thousands of these religion marketed to a particular group kind of thing. And for many people, that's sort of where the action is, particularly among the younger, younger folks, because religion gets tailored to a particular set of values, needs, lifestyles, and it, it seems to fuse the religion with life as they know it, and it seems more real than, than one might find in a more traditional religious setting. Now, uh, there's all kinds of serious claims to or, or, or Critiques one can make about niche marketing of religion, and I don't have time to go into that, and stick with my plan to not let this go too long. But my point simply is, many Gen Xers are caught up with this kind of tailored, stylized form of of religious marketing. Whether all this is good theologically is is an issue which uh, we'll have to save for another rainy day's uh, blues to discuss. Number five, you were waiting but this one's rather long. (laughs) Hang in there with me. Electronic culture and epistemology. It's a little thicker, but we'll get through it. Already, I've pointed out about Gen Xers and their connection to television and computers. Of course, there's much more than just television and computers, video games, MTV, iPods, and the far reach of cyberspace. Gen Xers are an image heavy generation. Image-heavy generation. They're also an interactive generation, in the sense that it is common for them to engage images and hence to become subjectively involved in virtual realities. Now, right there, I said a lot. Simply put, for Xers, there are many layers of meaning. There are many worlds of meaning. Definitions of reality are just that, definitions. As was revealed in the movie, The Matrix, where the distinction between reality and imagination is not all that apparent. What is reality, after all? Do we, do we live in a place or in the definition of a place? Asked poet Wallace Stevens. Interesting question. Do we live in a place or in the definition of a place? Gen Xers relate to that question. Much has been written about media as epistemology, or the fact that any definition of truth, including religious reality, is shaped, at least in part, by the form of communication. In print culture, for example, pulpit oratory and theological debate flourished. Commentator Neil Postman writes that in the 19th and early to mid-20th centuries, when we had a print culture, we had what he calls a typographic mind, a mind that was imprinted by the written word and the oratory and debate and commentary based upon it. The typographic mind was oriented to the coherent arrangement of ideas, beliefs, and practices. Rational order and linear thinking were hallmarks of the typographic mind and very important for the way in which congregational worship services were structured. But once electronic culture was superimposed upon print culture, we have a much more multi-textured religious context. Added are new modes of knowing. Seeing is believing not just reading or hearing. Feeling is believing. Seeing is believing and feeling is believing both take on new status in addition to reading and hearing as a traditional means of believing. Compared with print communication, the visual connects more with emotion and affect. A picture is worth a thousand words, so it is said. Because feelings are also deeply activated in visual imagery, the body is engaged as an intimate and integral part of the total response. Visual logic differs from print logic. Visual logic enhances imagination. And imagination connects to bodily movement and intense experience. These three imagination, bodily engagement, and intense experience. These all have a close affinity with mysticism. Thus, it is not surprising that so many young Americans turn to the Kabbalah and its mysteries, or to medieval Christian saints as role models, or to Eastern spiritual masters because of their promise of insight through contemplation. In mystical experience and imagination, you can move rather easily across vistas of time and space, combining insights from a variety of sources. In such journey, truth is less objectively grounded and more subjectively defined, defined as one's own meaning. In the most basic sense, What Xers want is their own experience of the sacred as opposed to what any particular group or institution might tell them should be that experience. Now, a hundred years ago, the great American psychologist William James, who who had just finished writing his, his classic book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, he spoke of First-hand religion and second-hand religion. First-hand religion, James said, is the experience itself. The authentic encounter. The I and the thou. Second-hand religion, he said, is all that is built up around that experience. Such as doctrines and creeds and traditional practices. Now what I'm suggesting to you is that Xers are reminding us that what is most fundamental in religion is some experiential connection with it, some sense of emotion, some sense of feeling involved within it. And they are on a quest to find that. So I'm putting a very positive interpretation on their quest. They value subjective knowing more than propositional truth. They don't particularly like creeds. They don't particularly like institutional summaries of what you ought to believe, what you ought to do to be a good Christian or a good Jew or a good Buddhist, whatever. For them, religion is a feeling, sometimes a relationship, but always a story of personal meaning. Intuition is important. The heart triumphs over the head. In worship, they prefer multi century experience. They seek encounters with the mystical. Don't expect too much rational coherence of belief, symbol, and practice. They reject rationality, by and large. They can easily combine elements of many religious teachings, even combine elements of angels and demons. If it coheres together and makes some sense to them, that's what counts not whether it looks like it's orthodox by some humanly constructed standard in religious history. Gone is the dichotomy between mind and body. The two are bound together in religious experience. At its best, worship is movement in which mind and body come together, be that one in Christ in the Christian terminology or be that in Jewish identity or in nirvana are in its most cynical expression, in nothingness. So that's a rather quick tour into the world of Gen X. We could spend much more time on any and all of these points. We could also have drawn out more implications for religious groups and for congregations in particular. But I'm going to close with a comment, and then I'll entertain some questions. I'm going to close with this comment by Steve Raby, who had this to say about Gen Xers and Christianity. I think what he says also holds for all the other religious traditions. He writes, It is too early to tell what the future church will look like, but it's unlikely that the emerging generations will either radically invent Christianity, as some of their optimistic boosters believe, or drive it into extinction, as some of their harshest critics fear. Instead, it's more likely that they will modify Christianity with their unique generational and cultural perspectives, much like believers have been doing throughout the first 2,000 years of
2: history. Thank you. I have one question. Yes, ma'am. Have you heard the term "whateverism" in relationship to even those a little younger than the Gen Xers in yes. regards to religion?
1: Yes, I have. Uh, it com- you know, the, the more frequent word is just "whatever." You say, "Well, well, well, whatever." But "whateverism" is 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 just making a, I guess, a a philosophy out of out of whatever. So yes, it it it, sur- it suggests a kind of pragmatism. Whatever um i guess i guess it's it's a word you might expect to emerge in a pluralistic world where where there's so many options right so okay, you can have it your way i'll have it my way whatever um and and that works fine up to a point and you you, worry, you do you do you, do, you, do you at some point do you bounce up against some kind of boundary where uh whatever doesn't seem to work too well, you know uh, I mean, there's you know, some ethical, moral issue where you say, well, no, whatever just doesn't work there. It's, it's got to be this way. So I suppose with the use of that word, many of the younger folks are kind of pushing the boundaries. You see how, how far you can carry relativism, pluralism. I suppose that's what's going on. Yes, ma'am, please, please use the microphone.
2: Well, for one thing, I agree with everything you said. I was just finished. Oh, don't do that. No, oh, not everything. Oh, but I do. Uh, let me just quickly say to you that uh, a Christian, a Catholic press, Paulus Press, is publishing a series called The Spiritual Traveler. And I just wrote a book in that part of that series, and they're trying to reach out to precisely the audience you're looking at. My other question, or I should say my other comment has to do with your opening uh, reading about this young Jewish woman who put an ad in a Jewish newspaper Mm -hmm. looking for a companion saying that I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. But Mm. she put the ad in a Jewish magazine and she identified herself as Jewish. She didn't put it in a Buddhist magazine. It didn't appear in Christian Century. How would you uh, respond to that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, she's got some boundaries, right? Uh, I suppose... I suppose she's affirming uh, a certain ethnic-slash-religious history and saying this is, the, this is the type of companion I would prefer. I think you might find the same in a Christian publication or a Buddhist publication. So I don't, I don't think there's anything all that unique to, to, the, to the Jewish tradition there. I think it's simply saying that with my understanding of companionship, some commonality would, would help, and that would be the basis of the commonality. Well, at least it would be ethnic uh, and religious cultural heritage. Whether it's whether it's an active practice of the faith is a different matter. So, I, I think what you're saying is, I would like a, an open-minded Jewish guy. Um, Jewish guy. Yes, a Jewish guy. Yeah, definitely that. <laughs> yes. My name is Brett Wagner, and that a. Neo-agnostic thing sounded pretty interesting. I wonder where they meet on Sunday mornings. But seriously, I thought that you wove into your uh, remarks very well um, how the evangelical churches have been able to engage exers in the generation uh, after them quite successfully. And for those of us in liberal faith traditions,
0: what recommendations or insights might you be able to share of how our faith communities might become more nimble and be able to engage the younger people better?
1: Well, it's an excellent question. And if I had good answers to that, I would be, I'd be writing that book because I know it would sell. Because uh, a lot of people ask that very question, and clergy everywhere I talk to ask that question. Um, I don't think that the that the mainline liberal religious institutions will um will necessarily do the same thing that the evangelical Christian churches have done and are doing. Uh the approaches are very different. I, I think I think the evangelical Christians have been extraordinarily um savvy in their use of technology. Uh and they've been able to capture an audience of young people in great part because they do make use of media very effectively and uh, the fact that they put the uh, lyrics on the screen rather than have people hold hymn books is a uh, you know allows for that I was talking earlier about the connection of the body and, 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 uh, and the mind and, and uh, when you don't have to hold books and things that that, that does allow a certain kind of, of uh, bodily uh, expression so I, I I want to commend them for 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 some of their uh, uses of technology. on the other hand um, I think well there, there are many levels at which one could try to answer your question but but w- there's also a counter reaction that's setting in to the so-called mega-church. Uh There's something now called the microchurch the emerging in evangelical Christian communities. The microchurch, sometimes called the emergent church, uh, is the latest wave. And it's, 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 it's more like the house church. It's the it's small group. It's, uh, it's where you really get to know one another and, and, and do things in a, in a much more uh, a closer and in-depth way. So, so the, I don't think the megachurch is going to disappear anytime soon, but clearly other institutional forms are emerging. What you've got to say about the evangelical Christians, they definitely are innovators with, with respect to institutional forms. And so they're searching. They're on a quest, too, to try to find the forms that work. And I think what we're discovering is that there are multiple forms for multiple types of audiences. No one form will do it. And I think the mainline churches need to recognize that they offer one option, and they ought to be authentic in whatever they do, and that will attract some people. And many it will not attract, but, you know, you're not, you can't be all things to all people. And so you, you need to be one thing, or at least a, a few things, but not too many, but do them well. Do them well and authentically, and try to generate trust and confidence and good role models. Um, I mean, those are the things that sell. It's, it's less what you say. It's more the examples, I think, uh, in, in the end that, that make, make a place attractive uh, or a faith community attractive. But I, I don't think mainliners should go rushing after doing it the way the evangelicals or anybody else is trying to do it. I, I don't think that's the way to go. I think you have to find your, your way that you can do it well and then do it well and, and see what happens. But as I say, I don't, I don't have any particular answers to that kind of question.
2: Thank you very much. I'm very interested in the church's response to knowing more about Xers, but I'm here as a grandmother. So I have two daughters who are Xers, and they tell me that the way I brought them up in the church was fine for them, but it's not okay for their children that I'm not supposed to impose, you know, my Christianity. Um, I'm not to talk to them about angels or Jesus or, you know, now Christmas, you know, we've got to be real careful. Don't make it too Christian. So anyway, uh, do you have any advice for us grandmas that aren't sure what we are supposed to be doing with our grandchildren?
1: Well, if I did, I'd be writing that other book on that one, I think. <laughs> I, I think I understand what you're saying. Uh, I, I, I think that's kind of implicit in what I've been talking about, that you might, might find it that way. Um, you know, um, I, I suppose in the ideal situation, both you and your daughters both have low tolerance toward the other there, that you've you, you got to recognize their voice, and they need to understand why you have that concern. Um, I feel like I'm a little bit like Dr. Phil here, trying to <laughs> t- trying to um, work this out among generations. Um, but what it does point, what your illustration does point to, is is the enormous differences from generation to generation about things like this, and and that that underscores my fundamental imp- interest in the study of generations, because I I don't think we've studied generations enough, and it's, it's fascinating. Um, if, if, if there's any solace for you, there are some studies that suggest that, that in time, you'll have more commonality with your grandchildren than with your children. So, so they may come back at some point, the little ones, and rally on your side. As somebody once said, the reason why that dynamic happens is because both the, the older generation and the young third generation have a common enemy. So... <laughs> so wait a while maybe but seriously I, I, I really don't know other than to say that one has to cultivate a, a, an atmosphere of, of respect and tolerance for, for, for different views and, and, and you know the little ones might grow up remembering a, a lot of your concerns and maybe it works out in the end I don't know I, I'm, sure that, I'm sure many of, you, of us here could relate to one aspect or another to that issue
0: You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv.